Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is episode 2153, 2153 of the Survival Podcast. It's a Wednesday, that's interview day, and we have one of my favorite people coming on the air with us today in just a moment. His name... Paul Wheaton, yes, from the Expert Council and from Permies.com and the Wilds of Montana. Some of you may have had an idea that he was coming on today. Those of you follow my personal page on Facebook, I posted a picture of Paul, and that was kind of a foreshadowing that the giant from Montana was coming. What is he going to talk to us about today? Rocket mass heaters. Paul, I think, is in love with rocket mass heaters. I think like he had an a, affection for them a couple of years ago when he first started telling us about them. But I think now he's gone into full-scale, out-and-out love for rocket mass heaters. He's done some incredible work with, with some of the pioneers in the world of, of rocket mass heaters. He's made a lot of advances over the years. He's here today to talk to us about that and how you might be able to use rocket mass heaters to improve your own life. And he'll tell you about how they use them in the very frigid mountains of Montana right now. Before we get Paul on, though, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is a company that I am so jazzed to have as a new sponsor, ButcherBox.com. Um, last night, Dorothy and I decided to do steak and salad for dinner, and I made a mistake. I cooked the steak before we put the salad together, and the steak was two beautiful ribeyes from ButcherBox.com. I seared them in a little bit of bacon grease with some of my own personally made steak seasoning this time around. It was pretty much rosemary, salt, pepper, and thyme, and a little bit of garlic. I seared them beautifully on both sides with my steel, uh, carbon steel uh, skillet from Lodge. And I finished them, mine to a beautiful medium, and Dorothy's to a medium well. And then I let them rest, and I sliced them, and we set them on a plate. And Dorothy said, we're going to eat those first, right? And last night we ate no salad. We sat down and devoured beef until we were full, and we were so happy, and we were so content, and we were so full, no salad got consumed. I think we should have got the salad together so it would have been ready when the steak was done, because once we tried one piece of the steak, it was over. So that's the kind of quality meat that ButcherBox provides. You can learn more at ButcherBox.com, but you should go through the Survival Podcast website, Check out ButcherBox that way. You can get a one-time discount no matter who you are from ButcherBox through us. Or if you're MSB, you can get a discount and free bacon, and then you can get a discount for as long as you remain a customer, which you can use to buy, you guessed it, more free bacon. Anyway, check them out today, ButcherBox.com. Next up today, hey, it just kind of worked out this way, didn't it, that we're going to talk about harvest eating and ButcherBox on the same day? Let's say you've ordered your stuff from ButcherBox. you got all that cool stuff coming. You're like, now what do I do with all this wonderful meat? Go to HarvestEating.com and learn from Chef Keith Snow. He's got, hey, the Paleo Beef Course. Why not take that? Check out his seasonings. I made my own steak seasoning last night, but you know what? I usually rely on, on Keith's Montana steak seasoning. It's just so awesome. 
He's got great seasonings. He's got a great blog. He's got a great podcast. He's got a great YouTube channel. He's got a great course for learning how to cook with your preps. He's got all that and more, and it's all at HarvestEating.com. He's also a member of our expert council and shows up a few times a month to answer your questions and usually make you hungry like I just did. Check him out today, HarvestEating.com. Remember, he does offer a discount on all his stuff through the Member Support Brigade as well. With that, let's take a look at the year in history segment for today. That is the year 95 AD we've worked up to now. We have a segment on TSP Wiki from David Verne. Domitian kills his cousin. Domitian appoints his cousin, Titus Flavius Clemens, as his co-counsel this year. However, Domitian then decides to put his cousin to death on charges of atheism. According to Roman historian Cassius Dio, this meant Clemens had either become Jewish or Christian, with the former being more likely. Domitian then executed his secretary, Fadius, a freedman who had helped Nero with his suicide, accusing him of not doing enough to try to save his master. After this execution, Domitian's once loyal court officials began fearing for their lives, and a plot was hatched to assassinate him, led by his chamberlain, Parthenius. My take by David Verne. When he, when he first came to power, Domitian extended court positions to all men of merit and had created an efficient and loyal bureaucracy. As soon as he started executing a few of them, some began to turn on him, and this will cause his immediate downfall. Yeah, you know, you, you, you look at these emperors and the way they do this shit, And you think to yourself, if you were smart enough to get to the point of being the emperor of freaking Rome, are you not smart enough to know how this always ends when you do this shit? I'll tell you what it is. You might wonder what it is. It's megalomania. It's, well, not me. It's power corrupting to the absolute to the point where people not only abuse the power that they have, but they believe they are so above everyone else that they can get away with things that no one has ever gotten away with. He's about to end up good and dead, folks, and it's going to be a deserving death. Uh, just the way it was back then. You can see when we go through Rome why so many of Shakespeare's works were rooted in the knowledge that they had at the time of what went on in the Roman Empire. Because it almost is a playwriting itself, is it not? Anyway... With that, let me remind you real quick, you can help support this show a really easy way by joining the MSB. But have you ever thought, I would like to be a lifetime member of the MSB? Your chance is here and coming up. What? That doesn't make any sense. It'll make perfect sense. Monday, Monday this coming week at 9 a.m. Central Standard Time. Not Eastern Time, not Greenwich Mean Time, not whatever time you think it is. Central Standard Time, 9 a.m. A sale will go live. You can buy an MSB Lifetime Membership. I'm selling 20, not 21, 20. That's it. When the 20th one gets bought, the system will shut it down and it will say, I'm sorry, we're sold out. The last time I did this was in 2015. Okay, so it was uh, 2015. It was three years ago almost. And we sold out in, gee, I think it was like six minutes. And I sold 15 of them back then. So this doesn't happen often, and it sells out quick. And if you want to get a lifetime membership at 9 a.m., you need to be raring and ready to go, sitting on the website. And at 9 a.m., hit F5 for refresh and make your order. And if you don't do it, 
That way, you probably won't get a membership. I could be wrong. Maybe they won't sell as fast as they did the last time. But I think every time I've done this, it's been a very, very quick sellout because I do it so infrequently. And remember, MSB, you don't just get all the great discounts we talk about. They get first crack at all the workshops and events and things like that. And usually those sell out before they get released outside the MSB. It's a really great uh, way to support the show. And I said, but you can also join now. How? I am going to sell four additional memberships. These four will be sold at a discount. Crazy talk. However, to join at a discount, you have to pay in cryptocurrency. You don't have to have the cryptocurrency yet, but you have to have, know that you have a means to get the cryptocurrency, uh, an account somewhere, be willing to buy it with cash, however you're going to do it. And I will do any cryptocurrency, $270 worth of cryptocurrency. Any, any re, don't try to not bite coin, okay? Right? Like Litecoin or, uh, you know, no Dogecoin or anything. Litecoin, Bitcoin, Augur, um, You know, any of the mainstream cryptocurrencies. Trust me, if it's in a Jack's wallet, I'll take it. Or, you want an even better deal? How about $250? $250 worth of ARK cryptocurrency. If you want to join by cryptocurrency, I'm doing this on a first-come, first-served email. Okay? You email me with MSB Crypto in the subject line. The first four emails I get that I confirm back, I will do the deal with you. I'll send you an address. You tell me what you want to pay with. I'll send you an address. You send it to me. That's it, right? So that's the two ways you can get an MSB lifetime membership. There's only probably 60 to 80 people out there. I have to look it up, but I've not done a lot of these that are lifetime members. And uh, so it's a pretty small club to be in. There is a special unadvertised bonus that all of you get when you become an uh, MSB Lifetime member. It's not worth any money, but a lot of people think it's really cool to have. I'll just leave it at that. All right. Might be worth money. I doubt it, though. So just before I, I bring Paul on, um, the interview's good. Uh, it's not that big a deal. I don't know what the hell happened with the recording, but there is an overlap in general, when I'm speaking and I'm asking him a question or putting a point over to him, where it'll sound like he's talking before I finished. That's not what happened on the air, guys, but uh, it is what happened on the recording, so I apologize for it. It's an overlap of a couple seconds. It'll sound a little funky, but it's not really going to take away from getting the information. Uh, that is an audio gremlin that in nine and a half years I have never experienced before. Anyway, with that, uh, let's bring on our special guest to talk about rocket mass heaters from the wilds of Montana, the Duke of Permaculture, Permaculture's bad boy, Paul Wheaton. Paul, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Wow, with an introduction like that, I feel like I now need theme music. <laughs> we, we, I might edit some in. Some like I did the royal theme music for you once, right? But uh, something more that says pie is what we need, you know? Uh, <laughs> Hey, man, like, you, you've been on the show a lot. My audience generally knows who you are. You're on the Expert Council. We hear from you a couple times a month on average. But for people that, that don't know, that maybe today was the first time they made the mistake of putting Survival Podcast on their phone or something, <laughs> right? Who the hell is Paul Wheaton, and how did you get into permaculture? Oh, like, you want me to answer that question? Yeah, but I mean, uh, like, in, like, like you know, the, the elevator answer, like the 35-second okay, to two-minute right. answer. All right. Giant doofus in overalls. Just <laughs> crazy giant. I think when you see me, you are disturbed at how giant I am. Like, 
this is not okay that you're this big. <laughs> and, and then uh, I used to be a software engineer and uh, got bonkers about gardening. Uh, uh, got so obsessed with gardening, I needed a bigger place uh, with better soil, more sun. Then that became too small. It just grew. And the next thing you know, cows and chickens. Uh, and, and then um, I needed more space on the Internet to talk to people. Um, uh, I created my own forums because all the other forums seemed to want to shut me down. And, and, uh, but I wanted to talk to people a very specific way on very specific topics, thinking it would be a very small audience. Somehow it grew to 20 million page views per month. Uh, it's enormous, a uh, huge community. Then at, at uh, like about 2009, I believe, I heard about rocket mass heaters, went to a workshop, and I said, hey, uh, why don't more people know about this? And they said, oh. And so <laughs> I got it in my, in my head that I'll take some video, put it up on YouTube, and start getting the word out. And then people would like not believe it because it, there wasn't like more professional information out there. So I made some DVDs. Uh, then, then people said, There's, there needs to be more professional information out there. <laughs> so I made better DVDs. <laughs> and... <laughs> that is exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened. <laughs> well, I met more professional than that. <laughs> So we had a, we had a workshop in 2012, which was like I was really gunning for a lot of stuff to happen at this workshop, and it sold out fast. And and then people were like, "Can you video it? I'll buy the video." So I videoed it, and I was kind of like thinking, "Oh man," because you got you end up with like all this. I think I had 24 hours yeah. of video footage, and that's just one camera. And I'm thinking like. Oh, I don't want to put this onto DVDs. That's like work. And, <laughs> and so I did a Kickstarter, and I set the amount so high that I thought, oh, it won't get funded. I'll get out of it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I set the amount at eighteen thousand dollars, and I got, I think it was ninety-five thousand dollars. Wow. And, and then I felt like, oh, well, what I recorded wasn't that good. <laughs> and, and so I went and we recorded some more stuff to kind of make it seem not so bad. And unfortunately, I had a great editor. Anyway, you asked in 35 seconds. I think I've gone over that. Yeah. <laughs> Let's just say that you're, you're nuts about permaculture. And the way I, the way I put it in my, my, my pre-intro that you haven't heard was that I think that Paul Wheaton over the last couple of years has gone from really, really liking mass heat, uh, rocket mass heaters to falling in love, to having a love affair with the rocket mass heater concept. And uh, so, so on that, since you are in love with rocket mass heaters, let, let, let's talk about you know, what exactly is a rocket mass heater and can they actually be cleaner than natural gas heat? So uh, the short answer is, and, and as far as my love of rocket mass heaters, I just I just kind of want to say that um, I I am baffled that people still buy wood stoves. I, I'm just I mean it's kind of like uh, I I feel like I must be defective if people haven't heard enough about rocket mass heaters that they're not buying wood stoves, or even more importantly, if they already have a wood stove that they haven't yanked it out and put in a rocket mass heater. I I'm baffled that it's like, you know, if you're burning wood, you're, you're doing, and even if, even if you're heating with almost anything else that you haven't uh, at least 
put in a rocket mass heater as your primary heat and let that other stuff kind of be secondary or something. Um, I am I'm baffled that that hasn't happened, and I feel like it's my shortcomings. Because those guys that I met in 2009, um, uh, you know, I said, why haven't more people heard about this? And they said, oh. Then I kind of like, well, then I will. <laughs> I will go forth and tell the world, and it will be awesome. And and uh, and granted, I think we've got about a hundred thousand, no, uh, hundreds of thousands of people that have built these now. But I'm kind of thinking, like, shouldn't that be more like hundreds of millions? Um, and and so I'm I'm feeling like, man, how do you get from, you know? And and then when I hear like, okay, okay, let's look at why. Let's look at the why. When I see the 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 why, it's like, really, that's it. But that's but that's bullshit. That's stupid. <laughs> that's, that's that's your reason why. That's I mean, if you just think about it ten seconds, you will understand that what you just said is dumb. I mean, it's like that doesn't. So, all right, <clears throat> back to the thing that you just said. Is it cleaner than? natural gas and it's and the answer is yes in fact uh, uh we're seeing and, there, and i'm taking into account that you know like let's take in the whole network of natural gas and and it's like let's pretend for a moment that fracking has no environmental impact at all um and uh, uh let's just let's also pretend that there's no other environmental disasters happening in the world of natural gas let's pretend that Tanks of natural gas just appear from the gas ferry on the shelf. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 That. That. <laughs> okay. So first of all, we're seeing carbon monoxide. So it's like in our exhaust. When we measure the exhaust of a rocket mass heater by putting a probe into the exhaust, so not just like, you know, and and we tested at several different points, we're seeing uh, carbon monoxide counts drop down to nearly zero, much lower than what you see for when uh, burning natural gas. And uh, uh, so we're, we're actually seeing burns. Now, now granted, when, when you start a rocket mass heater, there will be a little bit of smoke. And when it finishes, there'll be a little bit of smoke. And of course, if people have built a rocket mass heater stupidly, or they've built something that is not a rocket mass heater, but they point at it and say, look, I made a rocket mass heater. And let's not count those, okay? That's not fair. So, because we've been seeing a fair bit of that, like somebody make we call it a a freak show of flaming death, and uh, <laughs> it's been mislabeled as a rocket mass heater, and it's like who suggested that you build it that way? Freak show of flaming death. Yeah. Oh. And, and so then those aren't going to run very well in any way, but. Uh, we've been we've been having just amazingly positive results. I mean, uh, if if you use a rocket mass heater from uh, nine years ago when I very first saw them, uh, they were just starting to move into homes. They were still they still were glitchy and had issues. But there's been so much progress in in the last nine years, especially in the last five years, uh, that it's like it's it's a it's a whole new world, and and frankly, there's still room for optimization. I mean, uh, it was like uh, about uh, uh, seven years ago that we started that I started to say, heat your home with one tenth the wood, and uh, I think I think it's possible that in the next, I mean, we're seeing better than that now in mm. in certain circumstances. And I I think it's plausible that we could go past that. In fact, I know we can. I I know. 
but it's like uh, it, it would. I could talk more about that, but basically, you have to have the human discipline to be able to get one of these to operate, so that you're heating with one twentieth of uh, the wood of a conventional wood stove. But <clears throat> let's face it: uh, whenever you uh, create a system that depends on human discipline, that's your failure point. Hmm. And and so um, I'm advocating. And besides, once you get down. Because, like, right now, I'm heating my Montana home with 0.60 cords of wood each winter. And, uh, and it's like to get it down. And, and if you can imagine a box that's four feet by four feet by four feet, that's half a cord. And if you heap it, that's 0.6. And it's like, that's all the wood I'm using hmm. to heat my home all winter. And that's to keep my home at, like, 72 degrees. Well, and there's and a so point where it, it could be more efficient if I spend, like, a couple hours a day dicking around with it, but it's efficient enough now. I mean, if you're using that much wood to heat a house in Montana, you know, then if I if I needed heat here, I might use a dynamite box full of freaking wood. I mean, there, there's a point where yeah. you're you're good enough, right? I mean, and yeah. if you can make the system more efficient, fine. But if you're gonna have to sit there and dick around with it, I mean, ten one tenth or ten percent. Uh, is is enough reason alone to look at this. So how, then, Paul, is a rocket mass heater different from a wood stove? Okay. Oh, great question. Uh, a wood stove is going to be a, a, basically a metal box. And, that, and granted, there's a bunch of stuff that they've done to make them burn more efficiently. But let's just start with the concept of a metal box with a metal tube going up through your roof. And then the idea is there's a fire in there, and you extract the heat immediately. And it's a huge improvement over uh, a fireplace. Uh, and so it's, it's, you get a lot more heat into the room. <clears throat> but the thing is that the fires reach a maximum temperature of about 1,000 degrees, which isn't hot enough to burn, the, burn up most of the smoke, nor is it hot enough to uh, burn, the, burn up the creosote. And so uh, uh, there gets to be creosote issues. There's ways of, of taking good care of that stuff so you can burn more of the smoke as well as burn the creosote and stuff like that. Lots and lots and lots of discussion. But the key is, is that basically a rocket mass heater is going to have a firebox that's insulated. And you're going to try and get the temperature up like beyond 1800 degrees. So much, much, much hotter. That definitely burns the creosote. So the creosote becomes an additional fuel and it burns the smoke. And it's like even the very beginning of the fire when you're very first getting started and at the very end of the fire when it's starting to peter out, you're still burning all of that stuff. And uh, uh, then after this insulated chamber, then you go into the space where you're trying to harvest the heat from the system. And uh, a conventional wood stove, you're like wanting it to go up every single time. And so you're actually required by law to have the temperature be 350 degrees or higher that goes up through the roof. That's a lot of heat going outside. And so with a rocket mass heater, we try to harvest as much of that as we can and have the exit temperature be uh, anywhere from uh, 70 degrees to like 120. Now, we, you know, and I could talk more about exit temperatures and stuff like that, but for the most part, those are the, the two big things. When... You have a 75% efficient wood stove, then it's going to say on the label 75%, but actually in lab tests, it only got 59% efficiency. 
and uh, but they're allowed to add 16% back in by law, and uh, and then that's their best burn. They did 20 different burns, and 59% was the best burn that they got, and that's in a lab test with kiln dried wood, and it's like you know conditions far beyond what you're going to do as a as a person that's just a, a user of a wood stove. Yeah, I, I don't know about you, Paul. I've burned a lot of wood in my time. I've never set up a kiln and dried my... I, I, I don't know, maybe somebody does, but like the only people I don't have things like kilns are people who do pottery. Yeah. Right? I mean, I, 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 don't, I don't know of anybody that heats their house with kiln-dried wood. I'm just saying. Well, in a lab, I mean, basically the thing is, is, is that when you're a lab and you're doing these tests... Then you're kind of like, okay, I want to put out the best possible numbers while still being honest about it. Well, and to be completely fair, there's this thing called the scientific method, and you have to have every single thing that's tested tested to the same parameters for the comparison to be valid if you follow scientific method. So they kind of have to have a base point. So when they bring in stove A and stove B, and they say this one did this and this one did that, that they're basing it on the same metric. I mean, I get it. Right. And, of course, you know, wood is a, is a fuel source that it's like, okay, how, you know, there's only, in order to, to do this test, there's, you know, you've got to use the same kind of wood. And so it's like, okay, well, we've got that kind of wood, but we selected a certain variety that has slightly higher BTUs or something. And <clears throat> we kiln dried it. So then, you know, we have to put in a certain number of pounds of wood, and, and because we've got extra water out of it, then we're going to have a few more BTUs that we're putting in. <clears throat> the key is is that the next lab over also wants that testing business. Hmm. And, uh, you know, if one lab says 58% and one lab says 59%, who do you think that the <laughs> stove manufacturer wants to do their next test? Sure. Yeah. And so it's like, okay, well, what are they going to do? They're going to, And then... The average user, so it's a 59, says 75% efficient. It's actually 59% efficient. The, the user uses it, not a really good burn when they've done a really good job. They might get 50% efficiency. And then at night, they're going to, like, uh, put on a big fat log, and it might be a little damp of a log because those last longer. And uh, uh, they're going to turn the dampers way down. Uh, in order to hope that it burns all night long so they don't have to get up in the middle of the night and stoke the fire. Now they're getting less than 10% efficiency, uh, sometimes even as low as 3% efficiency. Then the fire goes out, and the dampers are still open, and then there's still heat in the box that's going up that chimney. In fact, the house is warmer than the outdoors, so heat, air keeps going up that chimney, and uh, and so now, with the fire out, you're getting negative efficiency. All the warm air in the house is now going through your stove, going outside. So it's like, we have lots of room for improvement here. And uh, a rocket mass heater, I mean, the bottom line is, we're, I mean, I, I keep saying this, and I have had people say it's hype, it's lies, it's it's marketing, it's whatever. And it's like, uh, we have a we have lists and lists and lists of people that have switched from a conventional wood stove to a rocket mass heater, and they're reporting typically that they're heating their home with one tenth the wood. Now there have been some people that had a super expensive, super efficient uh, wood stove, 
that they took out and replaced the rocket mass heater, and they're saying that they're heating with about one-fifth to one-sixth of the wood. Um, but they're still, I mean, that's still a dramatic saving. It's huge. It's huge. Yeah. And, and for people that live in the South like me, that unlike me never lived in the North, um, and never had to either procure or buy, let's say, four cords or five cords of wood a year, then you don't really understand what we're talking about, I think. I mean, it's it's not, if you have to buy your wood, it's not cheap. You know, and, and, and there's no free, right? You know, mine's free, I cut it myself, so you put a lot of time and effort and energy into it, and that's good for you to work out. But, yeah, okay, fine, but what if you took the energy or the money that you're using to buy that wood or to procure that wood and put it onto something else because you don't have to do it there anymore. Absolutely. At, around here, it's about 200 bucks a cord delivered, mm-hmm. and then you have to stack it yourself. And uh, But, of course, you know, uh, <laughs> your, neighbor, your neighbors will think less of you if you buy it. <laughs> um, but, hey, sometimes it's a grandma or something. And or unless they, say, buy they, they think plenty high of you if you buy it from them. that's true so yeah you you know you got to get your big truck and you got your chainsaw out and you got to but it's like with with uh the the rocket mass heaters um and the thing that uh, a lot of people do is that uh like they've got a yard they've got trees in their yard branches through the winter or whatever fall off the tree and the stuff that they just pick up in their yard they uh buck it up into the right size, and they throw it into a box where it dries, and then they use it for firewood um, come uh, uh, winter. And uh, that's all that they use. Um, and uh, when I did that thing nine years ago, I was told about a guy who heated his house with nothing but junk mail one day. <laughs> and, uh, but, of course, junk mail was a lot more prevalent. Yeah, then. it'd be a little more difficult to do today, but... I remember, I remember hearing a guy about a guy doing that a long time ago, and he was making logs out of junk mail. He had like a shredder, and he pressed them into logs, and he purposefully got himself on every junk mail list there was. But uh, <laughs> I, I think that the internet has changed that for the better. That's a lot less dead trees, right? Um, well, oh, that's a whole another weird thing. People are all worried about dead trees, but out here in Montana. Uh, uh, the forest fire problem makes it so that if you don't go out and thin your trees once in a oh, while, I agree. and then then you're going to have forest fire problems. Yeah. And so, what do you do with those trees? Here's what they currently do with those trees: they put them in enormous piles and set them on fire, and they put tarp over <laughs> them. And then when winter comes, they set them on fire. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, why have all that fire out there and not heat your home with it? Not only that. But, like, all of Montana, or at least all of western Montana, becomes a smoky, gets all smoky for, like, two weeks in the middle of winter, not from people heating their homes, but from these these brush fires that they have in the middle of winter. <laughs> and it's kind of like, man, it just seems so dumb. <laughs> all right. Anyway. So, what's, what, what else? What, did I answer your question? Yeah. I don't even remember what the question what? The question was how it's different than a, a regular wood stove, and I was going to ask you next how you can claim uh, that you get, you know, that you could do that heating with one tenth of the wood, but you just kind of hit that already as well. So let's talk about legality. Is are they legal? And I, I mean this probably in a different way than maybe people are thinking. I don't believe for a minute 
If I go out and build a rocket mass heater, let's say in a greenhouse here or something like that, that like the ATF are going to come in, rappelling out of helicopters and point guns in my face and say, you have an illegal rocket mass heater. I don't, I don't mean it that way. I mean like, let's say I, you know, I live like here, I live in a place I don't, but let's say I lived a mile down the road where I was in a township and they have building codes and things like that. Like, and, you, and I got this big giant Wookie from Montana telling me to build a rocket mass heater in my living room. Is it, is it, yeah, that was foreshadowing of the episode. Uh, but like, is, is that, is that legal? Is it going to be, you know, code compliant? I mean, that type of thing. Okay. Uh, I have said for years one thing and I had, a, I have a small correction to make to it that I just learned about. And so that is that if you build this like in your backyard, like you set up something for a, uh, a, a butt warmer for your friends outdoors. Totally legal everywhere in the United States. Um, and uh, there might be, uh, it's possible that there are some building codes, some places, and I've heard of this before, where, where it's like you can do it, but you have to have an open bag of marshmallows nearby. Okay. <laughs> so, or hot dogs. Something, yeah, it's a campfire. You know? right? Yeah, okay. And it's like because a barbecue is allowed and uh, certain fires are allowed in, like in your backyard. You can have a little fire in your backyard if you want. But it, like limited burn, you can only have it burn for two hours or something like that. And but, but it's legal everywhere is what I used to say. And then somebody corrected me and said <clears throat> that in, uh, in the city of San Francisco, apparently uh, that's, uh, that I'm told that's the only place where you're not allowed to have even a barbecue you're not allowed to have like any kind of wood burning anything whatsoever i, I kind of uh, feel like san francisco shouldn't be legal <laughs> right we should just outlaw san francisco but okay all right well i i want to I, I would love to talk for two hours about san francisco because i was there for a week and it's like there were some really cool things but uh okay setting that aside um uh People build them in their, in their uh, shops and greenhouses all the time, and I don't know what the, the exact legality is for every place in the United States, but I do know this, that about seven years ago, yes, I think it's seven years ago, uh, that it, be, it went into the code for Portland, Oregon. And, uh, and that code has been copied into several other cities and counties. Uh, also, I have heard that a lot of people are getting their rocket mass heaters insured um, uh, for house insurance stuff uh, as a masonry heater. Mm. Um, and so there is a lot of progress. <clears throat> well, there's, there's a lesson there, right? That's a big lesson. Um, you know, when we started up Permaethos back in the day, um, we were trying to get insurance for the farm. And they said, well, what, what, what do you do? We said, we, we do permaculture farming and we couldn't get insurance and then i'm like just tell them we do organic farming and so we do organic farm. okay here's your insurance policy so so sometimes it's just what you call something right <laughs> yeah 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 no no masonry heater yeah because masonry heaters are a known quantity they're you know they're not spooky and rocket you want to put a rocket in your house i mean that's you know oh. <laughs> From an insurance company perspective, <clears throat> in fact, masonry heaters have been around for uh, hundreds and hundreds of years, uh, um, and and rocket mass heaters steal a lot from masonry heaters as well as 
the more modern wood stoves, they steal a lot from everything. I think you could make a compelling case that a rocket mass heater is a modern take on a masonry heater. It, it, it's, it's different, I'll give you that. It, it burns totally different, but in the end, it's a great big giant thermal mass that absorbs heat and radiates it out into your house. It's a, legally, I mean legally, it's a masonry heater. The big thing that the insurance companies are worried about is uh, a creosote fire. You're mm. going to burn your house down. And uh, fire departments hate wood stoves because a lot of their calls throughout the winter are putting are trying to trying to put out fires that are creosote fires, chimney fires. And uh, and so this is the number one thing that freaks out the insurance company. Uh, is, is the creosote fires. And, of course, with a rocket mass heater, you, you burn all of that. Um, uh, a masonry heater burns a lot of that. But also, you know, if it's going to ignite at any point, it's inside this masonry box. And, and it's, you know, very, very safe. So uh, I, think, I think that a rocket mass heater is more efficient and safer than a masonry heater but a masonry heater, I mean, that's where you're going to heat your home with like a quarter of the wood, maybe a fifth of the wood. And uh, a rocket mass heater goes a little farther still. Now, now, what about one of the big comforts of a, a wood stove is the fact that I can use it to cook. Can, can, you, can you use a rocket mass heater for cooking? Can you set one up so that there's a cooking capability? Is it there by default? Do you have to design it in? Is it not what it's okay. for? It, if you have a conventional wood stove that is not designed for cooking, there are things you can still do on it that are cooking-esque. And the same thing goes with a rocket mass heater. If you've designed it just for heat, then usually there's a barrel. But, I mean, the barrel is optional. You don't have to have the barrel but a lot of people use the barrel because it's just the right shape and you can get them for either free or like 10 bucks. So it's like, you know, that's much cheaper than having something fabricated. Um, but there's also, in the last few years, uh, we've been seeing a lot of uh, uh, wood cook stoves that are rocket wood cook stoves. And uh, uh, they're designed primarily for cooking just like you can get a wood cook stove that is an old school wood cook stove. I mean, for like three thousand to four thousand dollars, you can get a really nice wood cook stove and oven. And so we've got similar things that are in the world of, of uh, rocket mass heaters. And I'm, you know, and I want to make a quick little thing here. Uh, uh, notice how I'm saying rocket mass heater or a uh, rocket wood cook stove, and I am not saying rocket stove. And and I think this little bit of vocabulary is critically important because uh, the, the rocket mass heater is indeed based on the rocket stove technology, and for a while people would point at a rocket mass heater and say rocket stove, and we've gotten used to the fact that that's causing all kinds of stupid problems. Somebody will build a rocket mass heater that vents the exhaust outside, and somebody who's, has, who's not looking at it and is hearing about it and knows nothing will say something about all the children will die yeah. from carbon monoxide. I had to shut down an epic Harris rant about that one time. 
because he was thinking rocket stove. If you put, you know how he gets. If you put it in your house, you'll die. You'll kill everyone. Like, no, 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 no. That's not how this works. But that was quite a few years ago, and I, yeah, and we've come a long way from. And but then, but I think, and basically, I blame us. I blame the rocket mass heater community for bandying around these terms interchangeably for so long when they're talking about a rocket mass heater. And I am working my ass off to smack those guys upside the head and say, stop saying that! You know, so, because people are, people are freaking out. Like, I can't have a rocket stove in my house. So I'm here to say, yeah, don't, you know, because a rocket stove, people picture a camp stove, a little wood camp stove. Mm-hmm. And, and it's like, yeah, don't put that in your house. But a rocket mass heater then that, that vents to the outside and totally safe. In fact, I'm, I'm here to say that it is safer than a conventional wood stove, which is why insurance companies like want to snuggle up to it and are loving on it. Now, hey, and speaking of, just real quick, I'm sorry I'm like taking all of this stuff in a crazy direction, but uh, uh, suppose you have natural gas heat and your bill is $2,000 a year to heat your home, uh, wouldn't it be nice to have a rocket mass heater in your house and then your cost for heat goes from $2,000 a year to $0 per year? And, I mean, like, you can still have your natural gas heater there and, you know, maybe turn it on when you're going on vacation in the wintertime or something, you know? Just set it... What I do with mine, I've got a propane heater. I set mine to 55 and then, um, but but also my propane heater sounds like a jet engine in the house coming on. Um, and I, whenever I'm using the rocket mass heater, I never hear it come on. It just doesn't come on because we keep the house at about 70, 72, and uh, it's set for 55. So if I happen, to, if we leave the house for several days at a time, come back and it's 55 minutes. Got you. Much, much cheaper. Save a lot of money. So, I mean... How much do you think it really does and does cost to run a heater like this, you know, for a year? So somebody can compare it to their their gas bill or their oil bill, their electric bill, their wood bill for their stove. It would be easy. It'd be one tenth or whatever that is, right? But uh, in a in a financial stance, you know, heating an average American home that's not, you know, a Paul Wheaton certified Lafati or something like that. What, what's the cost of operation? I'm gonna I'm gonna say. Um, like let's say let's say you buy your wood and you have it delivered, and uh, at two hundred dollars you get a quart of wood, and oh hell let's let's pay the extra fifty bucks and have them you know stack it, you know two hundred so there's two hundred fifty dollars, and uh, so that was one quart of wood, and uh, I didn't even and then I hired gardeners to go and pick up the twigs that land outside and. And uh, whenever I have a box from Amazon, I don't put it in my rocket mass heater. I, I send that off to the landfill or whatever. So the maximum, I'm looking at like the laziest maximum expense here. I would say that you're looking at roughly uh, $125 a year because uh, half a quart of wood, you know, uh, is like what I, what I did. I, I measured it last winter here. And for a three-bedroom home, it was 0.60 cords. Um, so it's like, I don't know, if you've got like a, a much, much larger house, let's say, then, then maybe it's a cord. Maybe you're going to use a cord. 
Uh, and so it's then it's two hundred and fifty dollars for the whole year for a very large house. Now if you start talking about houses that are like poorly insulated or uh, you have uh, a, a teenager that hasn't learned how to close the door and just leaves the door standing open all the time, uh, then then it's going to get to be more expensive. Um, but still, it's like a fraction of the cost of whatever it's going to be for um, uh, natural gas or electric. And, and oh, hey, that reminds me. Um, there are, I don't know if you've known this or not, but there are some people out there that are really freaking out about carbon footprint stuff. Uh, I'm sure you've heard of them. Um, they exist. Uh, whether you believe they exist or not, they still, they're still out there. They're still freaking out. And the thing that bugs me about these people is that they're freaking out. And the things that they talk about to solve the world's problems, I'm kind of like, seriously? That's, that's, that's going to like, if everybody did it, I think you're talking about half a percent of difference. And, and it's like, okay, so I want to tell you, if you switch from electric heat to a rocket mass heater, you have reduced your carbon footprint as much as parking seven cars. So if, if, a, if a person is worried about this stuff, then rather than getting upset and, and like pointing at all these other things, look to your heat, your home heat first, and specifically rocket mass heaters first. So anyway, all right, I'm... Little tangent for you. No, it's all right. I'm not even answering a question anymore. <laughs> no, you're you're good. Um, let's. You mentioned the barrel is optional. So, what are the alternatives to the big ugly barrel, as my wife would call it? <laughs> well, first of all, I have seen a lot of installations where they start off with uh, a barrel that has no paint on it, and it is a rusty, scary-looking thing, and and it's kind of like okay, you don't. One of the things that, that most of us do is when we put the barrel in, uh, we do burn off all the paint, and we immediately put on a bit of oil, and it'll blacken the barrel. Um, and so then what you have is a barrel that is black, just like a wood stove is black. Um, so it's like that. I think that that's the smart path to, to generally go. I mean, it'll, and it'll smoke when you're first burning it. Um, just like when you're uh, seasoning a cast iron pan, hmm. it's the same kind of thing. I mean, the oil that you put on is going to polymerize just like what it does on a cast iron pan. And so, um, so there's that. Uh, um, and some people use stove paint and I'd rather just put the oil on it. And then there's other things you could do to make the barrel look better. I have in my house, I have a stainless steel barrel. It kind of gets these interesting uh, colors to it for where it's hotter and less hot and stuff like that. No, I, I could see that. That would be kind of like it. Kind of, it's not the same metal, but like an old case hardened gun has that blue and purpley thing going on. Yes, yes, that. I think it's kind of a cool look. But okay, skip. Next thing on the list is that um, happened. Uh, the whole the whole idea of uh, fabricating something that is. Vaguely barrel shaped, so uh, a lot of times you can go down to wherever steel is sold, and, and they'll either fabricate something for you, or you can find a fabrication shop. Or I think I think I imagine that a third of the people listening to your podcast know how to weld, and they would weld something up and and make it look however they want. And it's just going to be a barrel, a basic barrel shape. Um, the next thing up is that. Uh, 
this is the first time I ever saw it. We have an annual innovators event here at my place, and uh, as in the middle of what we call the uh, the Rocket Mass Heater Workshop Jamboree. So we actually have typically like four builds happening simultaneously, and people can wander from build to build. And in the middle of it is the innovators event, where it's like we don't know what they're going to build. Each of the innovators builds whatever is their thing. And so, so one of them, uh, Kirk Mobert, uh, he uh, built a rocket mass heater that has no barrel, and it's for a tiny house. And it's all uh, bricks, and uh, um, uh, it, he covered it with a plaster layer, and it's a really beautiful-looking little thing. It looks like a little church in the middle of this tiny house. Uh but there's no barrel. It's a it's just a, a thing of beauty. But it, the way it functions is different. You get a lot less immediate heat. So with a typical rocket mass heater, you start to it, it, the temperature in your house might drop down to like 67, say, and you're thinking like, oh, it's it's starting to get a little a little chilly in here. So um, here's what I'm going to do. Uh, I'm going to go start a fire now, and then the barrel throws off the instant heat. And then your mass is going to uh, extract a lot more heat, and that's going to be your long-term heat. But this thing that uh, Kirk built, which he calls the Cyclone rocket mass heater, uh, um, it's all long-term heat and very little short-term heat. Uh, actually, out of the, there's a glass door on it, so you can see the fire. But um, uh, there is some radiant heat that comes out of that. Very cool. And I, I was while you were talking about that, I, would, I, I put rocket mass heaters into Google Images. And you're right. Since since you first started talking about this, the innovation's kind of crazy just in appearance yeah. alone. There's a lot of these look like modern artwork, and, and I mean that in a, I mean that in a good way because yeah. some modern art is crap. Some, I mean, in a very there's been some looks that have come out that have a been very really nice way, like, right? You know, um, uh, it yeah, looks like some kind of stone bench uh in your home uh it looks like something for like if you're going skiing in veil or something like that um uh or or you know at a fancy ski resort like this is what would be in a fancy ski resort kind of a thing uh and then when it comes to the barrels there's there's a lot of stuff that's happened recently in the world of barrels uh where people have either been fabricating something or They've taken a barrel and they've done art on it of some kind. And, you know, i got to tell you that all this art stuff is way beyond me. Uh, the, the most that I can do myself is, like, um, try to, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, cut the wood square <laughs> and, and uh, uh, do a, do a, make the, make the uh, plaster come out really uh, nice without, a lot of, without bumps in it. <laughs> Um, that's about as art, artistic as I can get. Now, one of, one of the things that we've done to make things <laughs> look better is that we, we have the pebble-style rocket mass heaters now, uh, and they generally feature a wood box, and uh, then you lay your ductwork inside of it, and then you fill it up with, with pebbles, and then you're going to put something on the top like either bricks or uh, the one in my house has got um, uh, granite slabs um and and so then it's a whole different kind of aesthetic because the uh the older ones were all cob style uh you know so it's uh uh they they 
definitely looked like, um, um, I don't know how to describe Cobb. I, it's not cement. It, it looks, it, it's uh, sculpted cement, maybe. Um, uh, but it, but Cobb is basically a, a kind of an earthen plaster kind of stuff, but you can use it uh, structurally as well. And so there's homes made out of Cobb. I don't, surely you've seen Cobb. Yeah, yeah. Have you guys have you talked about Cobb much on your show? Yes, absolutely. I, I really haven't. Um, it's just we we haven't actually had anybody ever say, "Hey, I want to come talk about Cobb on on your uh, on your show." I do know we have one listener that has a amazing Cobb house because when I did the uh, original Revolution Is You video, there's a there's an image in it of this awesome Cobb house, but that's about the only. Cobb oh, okay. interface right. that we've uh, well, that we've had I, we with the, the TSP community. For at a this lot point. of I mean, it's great. It's like whenever you want to use cement, usually you find a way to. I would imagine. Figure out like I'll I use would Cobb instead. We uh, we actually uh, up on my property. I mean, basically, you have to mix uh, sand and clay and sometimes straw. And that's it. Which sand and clay? That's oh, I'm making mortar, the stuff to go between bricks. You know, for a brick house, uh, and. Uh, but anyways, uh, we've got a spot where we go up there with the excavator and we dig it and we put it in the dump truck, um, and it's like we call it near cob. It's it's like uh, it's it's sharp sand, and it's got clay in it. And in, in fact, uh, if you use it as is, uh, it does. Uh, I don't know. It's it's not. It, it works as like cob fill for something. Uh, but if you add a little clay to it, then you've got pretty decent cob. So we we just go and dig it up and wet it a little bit and go and smush it into a spot awesome. and then when it dries, it's like almost like cement. Right. Not everybody that's does. That's pretty cool. Uh, and you have plenty uh, of that material on site. That's stuff, that's another big thing. You know, out of what they think is clay and it turns out to be silt and it falls apart. So Yeah, that's <laughs> or you know, you live in a place where you live on a limestone slab and then you <laughs> I, I got to get you down here someday, just so you can look at. The, if I come up there again, I'll bring a rock for you. D- these rocks we dig up, Paul. It's ocean bed. It's it's it, it looks like concrete. It looks like cement mixed with 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 uh, gravel, like concrete. But when you look at what looks like the gravel, it's all little crustaceans. It's all like little oysters and clams and stuff like that. Because where I'm sitting right now in Central Texas was at one time covered by something called the Great Inland Sea. And I would be sitting about oh, good five thousand feet you underwater right now. If it was still here, and you were talking well, don't know to me, and this was off podcast about um, making a pond, and 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 the more you told me about it, the the more my my heart hurt. <laughs> it's like, uh, I, and I think my advice to you was move, <laughs> move, <laughs> and don't. Yeah, no. Nah. There will be a. There's actually a lot of water on the property already uh, now, but it's in unique ways. But there will be a pond here. There was one, but it doesn't really work anymore. But I'm not. I'm not giving up. You. Sh- you really should see like the work I've been doing with these these timber frame, uh, basically water garden ponds. They're they're. They're beautiful. Now, they're easy to I, make, and ducks. they're not real expensive think, when you I look at what you get in return that for. Ducks them. will 
seal a small pond, and the way they do it is kind of weird. It's not the same as pigs. People get that confused, like, oh, it's the duck's feet. And it's like, no, you're thinking of pigs there. No, it's a duck. Sh- it's a duck shit. But uh, actually, you didn't hear the big announcement because it just happened yesterday. I am deducting the property. Um, it's a lifestyle decision. Like when we go on vacation, I end up spending almost as much money to have somebody basically live here and run my farm as I do to go on vacation. So we're we're making some changes with that and going to more of like when we do livestock, it'll be something like we'll run. We'll run chickens, and, and since I can't really paddock here effectively, we'll run them in tractors. And, you know, 12 weeks later, I, they'll go to graduation, and then I won't have to take care of chickens again until next year. Uh, so, we're you know, we're running, like, quail in our aviary and a couple bam. Oh, here's the thing. Like, so <laughs> I got this great idea, Paul. You'll like this. I was going to get these little bantam chickens, and they would go broody. And they did. And I put them in the aviary with my quail, and I'm like, they'll all get along. The chickens won't beat up the quail. The quail won't beat up the chickens. And they did. And then all of a sudden, my quail stopped laying eggs. And I got lights on timers for a couple extra hours of light. So they're getting 14 hours of light. They're getting good water. They're getting good food. And I'm like, I don't know what the hell happened. They just they shut off. So my buddy David brings over some eggs for me, some quail eggs, and we take the bantam chicken, and we put the quail eggs underneath the bantam chicken, thinking she'll hatch baby quails. And we went back like five minutes later, and all the eggs were gone. They ate them. Now, here's the weirdest thing in the world. Every once in a while, a quail will put out an egg that looks white. It won't have that little candy-looking mottling on it. They won't eat those. They only eat the ones that are speckled. Now, I, I don't think you've seen this. I have a chuckling. A chuckling is a chicken duckling. I took duck, a duck egg and I put it under this phantom because she was going to die if she didn't hatch something. She hatched a baby duck. So there, the, there's three mother bantam chickens all mothering <laughs> one uh, silver apple yard oh. duckling right now. That's pretty cool. I, I have 80 anyway, let, let's, let's go back to your topic before we run out of time, right? Three minutes. Uh, and then we can, we, we'll have some time. Okay. All right. Stop. We must finish. I have one more question for you, or two more questions for you on Rocket Mass Heaters. How much smoke is there really when it comes to a Rocket Mass Heater? Because that's something that, you know, my wife is like, there's any smoke in the house. Okay. okay. So uh, how much smoke all, is there really? You said there's some when we started up. Where uh, I build a Rocket Mass Heater in an hour and ten minutes. And uh, it's at an event, and we're running a fire, and uh, I'm sh- moving the camera between the fire and the exhaust. Because the exhaust, I've got it set up right next to where the wood feed is. And uh, so then, uh, then, and then there's a uh, a guy comes along. He sticks his hand in there, and he says the exhaust temperature feels like room temperature. And then there's a woman. She sticks her face into the exhaust, and she breathes it in. And she says, "I smell smoke, smell, but there's no smoke." And that's while I'm, you know, switching back and forth, showing the fire actively burning a blazing fire. So, you know, in the video, it, you, you would expect that, first of mm. all, the skin on her face would be burning off and uh, on fire, maybe. I don't know. But, uh, oh, but, and there would also be smoke. And, and if she went like, that she would like, 
but and that's not happening. So just to kind of paint a picture for you of how much smoke there sure. is with the exhaust, it's it's like really like bupkis. It's 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 typically steam and CO two. A rocket mass heater puts out about as much pollution as burning a candle. Um, so uh, then there's the smoke in the house, and it's like. Uh, and, I, and I've got to talk a moment about starting a rocket mass heater. You start a rocket mass heater a little bit different than you do a conventional wood stove. You have to put uh, a little bit of heat under the riser. So then what this means is is that you've got to like go inside the rocket mass heater just about 8 inches or so generally and get some heat back in there to kind of get the heat going in the right direction. you got to prime the pump. and And so that's... Now, when Ernie starts a rocket mass heater, he gets a ball of paper in his hand, and he lights it, and then when it looks like his fingers should be about on fire, then he pitches it inside and kind of like does a bowling maneuver to get the ball of paper to land underneath the riser to start warming the riser. I don't like the idea of having any smoke in my house ever, ever, ever at all. And, uh, and, like, when you look at most people's houses and they've got a fireplace, there's this blackened area over the front of the fireplace where it's like, wow, how many fires did they have here that didn't quite have the smoke going in the right direction? And, and that happens a lot, too, with, with conventional wood stoves and the like. And I don't like the idea of any, any, any smoke in the house. So for me... Um, when I light a fire, I light the fire in such a way that I, ha- I, I never have smoke when starting the fire. And when I say never, I need to mitigate that a little bit. Twice this year, I had smoke come back at me while I was lighting it, which really makes me mad because I don't want that to ever happen. And in both cases, what turned out to be, because I live right now where I'm at, we've got the lab, which is 200 acres of raw land, and we're currently doing all kinds of building projects up there, but I haven't moved up there yet. And so I'm down at base camp, and you've sat inside my house at base camp, which is just a boring, tiny double wide, um, which is a fairly modern. That means that it's like a Ziploc bag. It's, it's um, uh, When they built the place, they actually literally had layers of plastic for the house, which is the way that most building codes require homes to be built. So when all the doors and windows are closed, it's a bit like a Ziploc bag. And on these two occasions when I had a little bit of smoke come back and it made me so angry, uh, somebody in the house was running the clothes dryer, Hmm. which is like I never run the clothes dryer. I dry all my clothes Hmm. either line-dried or on a clothes drying rack. Um, and I've, I, I've got a 45-minute-long lecture about that topic, which I'm sure everybody, that all of your listeners know the points I would make. <laughs> and so there's no point in bringing it up. But it's like somebody was in the house, and they were like, oh, I'm about to go and, and get on an airplane. I just want to wash my clothes real fast. So they fired up the clothes dryer, which I, I'm tempted to disconnect and take out of the house. But... Um, and, of course, clothes dryer sucks air out of the house and blows it outside. And so it was making my – when I'm trying to start my rocket mass heater, it's making the air go backwards in it, which the same thing would happen with a conventional wood stove if, if that were the case. Um, and, and I'm sure that, that you 
probably have oodles of experience with wood stoves. True? Not really. No. I mean, uh, some. I mean, it's not like I've never used a wood stove or anything, but, like, I grew up in a house in rural Pennsylvania with a coal stove. Like, a, like a burning anthracite coal. And, you know, every winter morning I would come into the kitchen to do and one of my chores. So I had this crank, and I would run the crank, and I would make all the ash fall down in an ash pan. And then you take the ash out to the driveway and spread it around in the driveway so that you could get traction in the ice. That, that, that's the technology I grew up with. And my, you, my, you would have thought my grandmother had been given a first-class ticket to a mansion on an aircraft where she got to keep the mansion and the aircraft when she got a gas stove. It was like, you know, like the, the world had changed for the better because she had a gas stove after, you know, probably, I, uh, I guess, loaded, 60 uh, years of using a coal uh, stove. And, and that's a dirty job. And, um, okay, so leaving the coal behind. Moving, moving along. Uh, uh, I, I had twice. So, so basically, <laughs> I've used a lot of wood stoves, um, both in my youth and as an adult. Um, uh, many, many, many miles running wood stoves. And, uh, uh, yeah, if you've got, like, a kitchen fan or a bathroom fan going and your house is really sealed well and uh, you try to light that stove, then you'll get smoke into the room. And then you'll be – and then, yeah, and you'll go open a door or sure. a window. Just get negative get pressure. The draw going, and then you can go close that door or window. Um, and, and now you're probably – your wood stove is going so good, it's probably making that bathroom fan or kitchen fan run backwards. But, um, you know, and, and there's a bunch of stuff to talk about down this road. I mean, I've got about an hour and a half to say about sealing your home that tight and, and all those kinds of things. But skippity, skip, skip, skip. The bottom line is, is that you are asking the question, how much smoke do you have actually in your home? And uh, I'm going to say this year... I and every year, even on my so this year has been the worst year ever in that space because it happened twice, and um, I'm still doing far far better than when I run a conventional wood stove because because usually with a conventional wood stove I've had that happen more than twice, Um, but even more than that when I'm trying to get it going then uh, a lot of times there'll be a little bit of smoke that comes out the front of the stove while I'm trying to get it started. Uh, in fact, I had to go to a funeral recently in the Seattle area, and I was surprised to see that the, the house we were staying in uh, had a wood stove. And I'm like, I'm going to fire it up. And when I opened it up, it was an Airbnb thing. And, and they, had, they had all the paper and kindling and wood in there already. All I had to do was light it and close the door. And so I lit it, closed the door, and smoke started pouring out the sides of it into the room. <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> so I have, so far this year, I have less smoke in my house than in my one experience in running a conventional wood stove uh, at, at that house. And, and it had everything to do with um, how the house was sealed and somehow that house was magically a lower air pressure than outdoors. And all, and when I opened up a door, it stopped instantly. Boom. And that, so that was the case for for that. So, I'm going to say. And the other thing is, is like, right now, 
my rocket mass heater at this moment is heating me, and there is zero smoke anywhere because there's no fire. And so it's like all the all the the hours and hours and hours that my rocket mass heater heats me, and there is no fire is a time when there is definitely no smoke. So one, I mean, if you're going to burn one tenth the wood, you're going to have one at, you know one tenth the smoke or less. And then I'm going to say it's closer to one one hundredth of the smoke or one one thousandth of the smoke, and that includes any kind of smoke back you get from when you light the fire. Yeah, I think it also includes any smoke that comes out the the exhaust because you're burning the smoke. People don't realize like, oh, there's CO CO two is a fuel. Smoke is a fuel. If we burn, and that's part of where your efficiency comes from. You're burning that which would otherwise go out into the world and uh, it, you know go up into the atmosphere. It's now incinerated into well so one heat. Of the, we've we've we taken the matter and we've converted it to energy. Uh, the first thing and we do so is fire what, science theater. And uh, that's one of the DVDs that we we now have out there uh, is Fire Science Theater. But as part of it, it is we set the smoke on fire. We we create a fire that it has smoke, and there'll be a bunch of smoke billowing at the top. And then we set the smoke on fire as part of the presentation to show smoke burns. Smoke is an amazing fuel. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. And that oh. can be bad in the wrong situation. <laughs> Ask a fireman. But let's so so if you want to freestyle a little bit here for the last few minutes we can, but before we do that, tell people and you can provide me some links I'll put in the show notes if they want to know more about how to make mass rocket mass heaters and see what they look like and and, and get in touch with you on uh, workshops or your DVDs. Uh, What's the best way to do that? Yet. Uh, but if people go to richsoil.com slash heat then uh, they'll, they'll see the new DVD set. Um, and I think this, the same thing if they go to stoves2.com. We set that up with the old DVD set, but it's got links to the new DVDs as well. Um, we, uh, about a year and a half ago, uh, Ernie and Erica came out with a brand new Rocket Mass Heater book, which is a really great reference for this kind of stuff. Um, I have a YouTube channel. I think I have about 50 videos on Rocket Mass Heaters. Uh, and so there's there's that. We have a forum at permies.com that is just about rocket mass heaters. Um, <clears throat> I have the article at Rich Soil about rocket mass heaters, and, and I really need to get in there and, up, and overhaul that article. But we have been updating it with bits and bobs as time goes on, especially with some of these videos that make powerful points about rocket mass heaters. Um, there's, I mean, the resources that are available are, are massive. But I've got to also point out, there's a lot of stuff on YouTube that is crap. It's, it's like uh, somebody saying, look, I made a rocket mass heater, and, and we call that a freak show of flaming death. And it's like it, what you need to – if you're going to – I'm totally cool with other people making rocket mm -hmm. mass heaters and promoting those rocket mass heaters through all the resources that I have. Um, <clears throat> but, the, but, but really, the recipe is if you're going to follow somebody other than me, Look for stuff that's like three years old. Like this rocket mass heater has been through three winners. And now let me tell you stuff about it. But it seems like there's a lot of stuff on YouTube that says, look, we made a rocket mass heater. Here's how. And there's nothing about the history of that rocket mass heater. And I look at those and I think, no, you did it all wrong. 
that won't work. Um, and, and really, don't use metal in the core. Oh, wow. There's, because there's people who love to weld, and they hmm. get the, they're looking for a new project, and they get this idea of, I want to weld up a rocket mass heater. And it's like, okay, steel spalls at about 1,300 degrees. And that's, and that's probably the main reason why uh, wood stoves are made out of cast iron and not steel. Steel spalls at 1,300 degrees, and that's when it gets that kind of uh, gray, flaky look to it, and, and then it, it flakes off, and then it's gone. Where did it go? It went up into the atmosphere, which is not where you really want to have all your steel. Um, and then, of course, steel becomes liquid at 2,600 degrees, and, and it's like the rocket mass here in my house, we're getting past 3,000. And so it's like if that was a, if there was steel in the core, it would melt. So um, uh, please, 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 do not use steel in the core of your rocket mass heater. It's it's got to be something that can withstand temperatures over twenty five hundred degrees. Um. <clears throat> so uh, uh, anyway, there are lots of resources out there, but please be careful when looking at the YouTube videos. Naturally, I want everybody to go buy my DVDs and stuff, but really, you, you, you know, there's other resources too. Um, Ernie and Erica's book, and etc. Okay, so we'll have you pop me a couple of links to make sure I, I hit the important ones over there at Permies for you. Uh, we'll make sure we definitely have a link to where people can get your DVDs. But let's, uh, I, I, I'll give you a chance if you wanted to, to say something about kind of where I'm going on uh, on the farm. And you, before you do, let me also kind of key it in this way. Like, so it's not just the animals themselves. It's well, why are they here? So, so we, we don't have like 10 ducks. We have like well over 100 ducks. I don't know if you saw the little mini documentary Justin uh, Rhodes did here. And uh, the, we don't have 100 ducks because we're duck addicts and duck collectors. Yeah. We have 100 ducks because they make eggs and we sell them and we make money. Well, the, the reason we were doing that is because we moved here, and I have my business. This is what I do. And all my stuff is really just homestead-level stuff to produce for me, you know. And Dorothy was retired, basically, at that point and bored, and I need something to do. Well, now we have a, a, a daughter-in-law, and we have a granddaughter, and we have a grandson, and they're here every day. She now has something to do, so the business component doesn't want to do that anymore. So... You're talking about packaging, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten dozen eggs a day, washing, packaging, working with customers. So we just got to the point, like, we don't want to do that now. We're, we're actually paying labor to do that, and all our profit goes to paying labor. And so, and the other thing is I want complete freedom to grow stuff that they won't eat, and I'm not, I'm not carrying around freaking some rigged-up Electronet shit. I'm not doing it. So we're doing it as a lifestyle change, but it's, I think it's going to be a lot of fun, and it's letting us focus more on the, the aquatic systems and aquaponic systems. Uh, the aviary is freaking awesome. I've got the closest thing to free-range quail you'll ever find anywhere in the world, as far as I'm concerned, because, you know, everything eats a quail. Uh, cats eat quail. So I, I just don't think you're going to have free-range quail the way you do chickens. Uh, and, and so we're trying to take more of a let's make this property right, for us and rather for commercial production approach. Thing. And um, 
uh, you know, chickens, of course, will will reduce their laying uh, in the winter too. Uh, and and uh, and you did you're doing the thing about the light. Uh, uh, I like to emphasize: make sure that the light comes on at like 3 a.m. and goes out at 9 a.m. Uh, or something like that. Some people make it so that the light will go out at um, uh, uh, something like midnight or 9 p.m. or even you know something like that. And it's like, oh, oh don't do that because <laughs> at dusk the chickens are trying to roost and then and then uh, uh, they get in there and there's light. And they're kind of you know they're having a little chicken party. There's some music. There's clocking going on and everybody's boogieing and suddenly click the lights go out and they forgot to get up on their roost. Now it's dark. And, and mayhem, crazy, ah, what do we do? <laughs> and so I suggest that let, let them do the whole natural <laughs> dusk thing, get on their roosts at their, you know, the light fading, the, the normal way that they do it, and then let the light click on at uh, uh, 3 o'clock in the morning uh, when you do the light thing. And some people believe that you shouldn't do the light thing, but I'm, I'm cool with it myself. Um, <clears throat> then the next thing is, is like, Try to uh, uh, get some uh, protein and fats out to your birds uh, in the middle of winter. And there's a, a bunch of different ways you can do that. But start off uh, uh, as an experiment uh, just, to, just to make – there you go. They, they, get, me, they, they get mealworms every day. Mealworms. I really like mealworms. They get um, mealworms every day. But uh, uh, mealworms don't have yeah. – you know, Yep. Okay, all right. They're laying, Paul. They're, once I knew what was going on, they're laying. The chickens are eating them, and I'll tell you what happened. They weren't True. eating them at first. You know chip, chickens mimic. One of these birds like, was like probably not pecking the egg, but probably a something on the egg, and went peck, and since yeah. it's a quail egg, they break real easy. It went, hmm, that's pretty good. So then it figured out, ah, these things are, you can eat these. And so it started eating them. Well, then they all honed in on these little speckled things, our, our food. So when one comes out, like I said, every once in a while, if you've ever processed quail that have eggs in them, you'll realize that that speckling is probably poo. That, and it's showing basically, a, it's like a lithograph of the lower oviduct. I'm serious. And that's what that is. That's a lithograph of the lower oviduct. And it, when they first come out, they're wet, and it'll come right off. And if you if you if you butcher a quail that has eggs in it, just like if you do a chicken, you'll see like they're like in a like a magazine in a gun. They're lined up. And if you get one that's like going to come out tomorrow, it doesn't have any markings on it all yet. So, so something goes on randomly in quail that are laying eggs that maybe one in fifty of those eggs get popped out with no markings on them. When they get popped out with no markings, the quail won't touch them because they don't look like the ones they or the, the chickens won't touch them. So I got to figure out what to do with these little bantams. I love them; they produce beautiful little brown eggs. Um, and what I'm actually thinking about doing is coming up with a chicken that makes a decent meat chicken um, that I can self-propagate. And my area that my ducks sleep in now, we can keep chickens out there. I can automate everything. I'm talking like four hens and a rooster, not a lot. And every once in a while, just throw some of those eggs to my little bantams, and they won't eat those because uh, they've always pretty proven they like raising ducks, so I'm sure they wouldn't mind raising somebody else's chickens. And that's just to be another meat source. Or i got to get them out of there, and i got to go back to brooding my own quail. 
Um, or I can incubate my quail and put the chickens on fake eggs, and then as soon as the baby quails hatch, I could shove them under there and see if that works, and that probably would work. Um, but that's – so, like, the plan was this. I would have quail for meat, and I would do nothing except feed quail and kill quail. That was, that was the goal. And I know other people have done it. I've seen it done. But these birds have just determined that those little uh, chocolate-looking eggs are ah. good to eat, and I can't stop them. I, I can't, you know. And it's too bad because they're great mothers, man. They're, I, I have a new term. I call oh, it oh. brooding. Instead of brooding, brooding, it's group brooding. There were three of them on the, the, the duck egg. Three of them at the same time, they wouldn't leave. And when the baby hatched, all three of them are basically oh, I, following I it like a wonder, mom to take care of it. I, I have never tried to raise quail, although um, it's. I know that it, on my previous place at Mount Spokane, we were pretty infested with wild quail. And, and at my current place, we are thoroughly infested with wild turkey. Um, uh, but I kind of think that, uh, and I, I've, I've talked at great length on your show about why I don't like to do truly free range. And it has to do with chicken poop on all of the things. And yeah. No, I understand that. And when I say free range, I don't really mean that. I mean, yeah. not well, I wanna, confined. I advocate for right? So system. controlled versus and, confined. And, uh, and so I would say, you know, maybe the thing yeah. to do is paddock yeah. shift. This is where I'm going with this. Paddock shift systems for the chickens and then the quails separate as truly free range. And I kind of wonder if you travel that path, if I just can't help but think that the quail would possibly um, choose to not poop on all my things, but um, I. No, you, you're not letting quail run free, dude. It's not happening. They, the Jap and see, you're talking about wild quail. The Courtenay okay. Japanese quail have been domesticated for over 2,000 years. They are absolutely <laughs> inverted, retarded, I incapable. Uh, I'm serious. The, they, they don't know what the, we've had them get out. And they'll run, and once they realize that they don't have, like, their confined area that they feel safe in, they just sit there. And they just sit there, like, spazzed out, like they don't know what to do. Uh, or they'll start walking in circles. They just – they have to have some kind of, you know, thing. The, the thing is they won't, and they will not go broody. They won't do it. I've never seen anybody get one to do it, ever. Uh, but they're – God, they're tasty, and they're, they're, they're a meat animal. Six weeks. Six so, weeks, and you've got a one-pound bird. And they eat about two pounds of feed a month as adults. So, I mean, it's – and they give you an egg a day. I mean, like, if you got your lighting right, when we had that set up, we had, we had 40 quail. We got 40 eggs a day every freaking day. And they'll do that until their first molt. And when they molt, you pop their heads off, you pull their breasts out, you yank their legs off. You, you, you cook them or you throw them in the freezer, and you have, you know, seven weeks before that, you've put a batch of eggs in the incubator, and you have a whole new laying group that starts laying on week seven. So they're like the most amazing food and meat production machine, but, you know, they hatch the size of a golf ball, and brooding them is a pain in the ass. I want the chickens to do it for me. That's, now, my other, my other plan is to get some Bob White quails. 
because they're a wild quail. And get the Bob White quail, see if they'll go brood oh. and let them brood the court next out. So that's my that's my other opportunity. I don't know what I'm going to do. Then I've also heard those little, those little bantam chickens, dude. I've heard those are really good eating. So then there's the nuclear option. Bantam rooster, throw them in there, get rid of the quail. And then just let the bantam chickens grow to quail size. Cornish rock cross chickens. <laughs> yeah. The, do you mean the, the uh, mutant like ones? Just, I mean the, the behavior or, pattern yeah, is the same. Yeah. Like all they want to do yeah. is hang their head in the feeder, and a grasshopper goes by, and they don't even seem to notice it. No, you know they're not that bad as long as they have something that makes them feel safe, right? They're just they're not in the wide open. They run around in there. They take dust baths. They're happy. They're, they're not that mopey kind of thing. But when they get outside, and then I'm telling you, like snakes will eat. They're small enough. Snakes are going to eat them. Like just a rat snake, you just tear them up. Like that's why I have them in this. I don't know if you've seen my aviary. I've got this aviary. It's like a half round. It's built with cattle panels and quarter inch um, harbor cloth. And the harbor cloth goes all the way to the ground. It goes in the ground to the rock slab, which is like four inches down. And then it goes out a foot. And then it's recovered with dirt. So, like, if something wants to get in there, it literally has to cheese grate itself to get in there. So snakes can't get in, rats can't get in, uh, that type of thing. And it's, it's an awesome setup. I just, like, I, now I have to figure out. And it has 12 grow beds that are tied into the aquaponics system. It's, it's pretty awesome function stacking. But uh, got to figure out some way to, to re-meet the system, right? It was supposed to be a meat system, and now I've, it's a I've raised the Cornish a, rock it's a pet cross several times. So. And I was, anyway, I was I, selling the birds for just barely more than selling the feed. And, and I, you know, I can go on and on and on about that. But the bottom line is, is that those... Uh, uh, those birds, when I first raised them, um, I hated them. And then I tasted them and I loved them. And mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, you know, so at first I was like, I'm oh, never good. raising these again. Oh, they're these good. Are terrible, terrible. And, and then I ate, I tasted them and I'm like, I'm raising these every year. <laughs> these are delicious. I, I did the red. I did fifty or sixty of the Red Rangers, yeah. and they were they they worked great, and they get huge. Mm -hmm. And I did all I did all cockerels because they were cheaper and they're bigger. And uh, it turned out I had a couple hens. So just to see what happened, I threw the two hens in with the chicken flock I had at the time. They lived fine. They laid eggs, but the problem is they're not large breasted, and they don't have that succulent flavor that the Cornish cross does. Uh, the fact their breast, even for a big bird, is not much bigger than you know, like a standard dual-purpose bird. Their thighs are enormous, and the dark meat is so dark it's almost black. And if you take a leg quarter and put it in a crock pot and slow cook it for like two and a half, three hours, so the meat falls off the bone, the bone still comes out looking bloody. Now, this is not a problem for me. But it's not a mar it, it just doesn't seem like a very marketable oh, bird. Right, right. You, you know what I'm and, saying? Like that's not what the market. Wants. In the world of permaculture, I I I feel like, and I I realize I I may be the odd duck out on on nearly all of my philosophies and stuff, but I kind of feel like uh, rather than trying to to break into Safeway, which it seems like so many people are like, I want to do permaculture and I'm going to sell my food to Safeway, and it's like. Or, or then some are like, oh, I'm going to sell it to the local natural market and get a little bit more. I, I kind of feel like, no, 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 no. Don't do that. Instead, I, and this is, this, 
this is my path, and that's not for everybody. This is the thing that I think is cool. Instead of all of that, um, uh, cook it, cook it on site, you know, and 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 sell it as the final product, sell it as a meal, and and because a, a really great chef can do amazing things, like can make it so that that food tastes far better than anything that human being has ever eaten before because you've you've raised something that is a different product and so the way that you cook with it and flavor it is different and you don't you don't use the recipes for regular chicken on a bird like that and so i i kind of feel like when you're talking about how do you become how do you if you want to make the big bucks with permaculture Stop trying to compete in commodity markets and instead do like Sepp Holzer does, create a whole different market. Now, Sepp doesn't sell cooked food on on his land, but um, I kind of feel like the restaurants that have the attached uh, uh, permaculture paradise, that's the recipe to go for. Or, you know, something where you have people stay at your place for the full immersion experience including the food then then that's that's where you're making a lot more money per bird or a lot more money per egg than if you're trying to compete with commodity markets yeah no that makes sense and i'm not trying to compete with any markets anymore i (laughs) i just want to produce for ourselves anyway paul i've I've enjoyed having you on man uh remind people again just real quick the website you have that they can go check out and all the cool stuff that's there the stuff about rocket mass eater dvds and of course, Hermes.com uh, is the route for the empire. And there's all the, the, the forums, the podcasts, the videos, all the things. All right, guys. Always love having Paul Wheaton on the air. Had, had him on for a, a full on episode for quite a while as an interview. So it's good to have him back on. I'm sure you guys all take a lot away from that interview. Uh, rocket mass heater technology is really cool stuff. And I think we're only beginning to crack the surface of what it can actually do for us. Well, now that we've come to the end of another episode, I want to remind you guys that there is a completely painless way to support the survivalpodcast.com. All you have to do is do your online shopping where? Well, you know where. tspaz.com. If you go to tspaz.com, tspaz.com, you can see all the reviews that I do on Amazon. You can see all the reviews I've done on Amazon broken down into categories, and you can get on over from there to see the deals of the day, all kinds of stuff. The important thing is as long as you do your online shopping, go into tspaz.com first. You will help the Survival Podcast no matter what you buy, even if you were going to buy it anyway, just saying. So what do I got for you today? I got a low-cost item today, and an item that, believe it or not, it's just a thing for your kitchen, can change your life. Just a little bit. I mean, it's not going to be earth-shattering changes or anything. It's not going to make you born again. But it will make you happy. And it's just friggin' salt. I've brought this stuff around before. I hadn't brought it around for almost a year now. It's called Maldon salt. M-A-L-D-O-N. And it's a sea salt. So what's so special? Does it taste any different? Well, sort of. In a second, I'll tell you about the one that does. But not really. It tastes like salt. So what's the big deal? It comes in these little flakes, and they're like a little pyramid shape, and it's like a salt crunchy, even though it's just pure salt. So when you like finish a steak with it, and you cut into the steak, and you eat it, not only do you get the salt flavor of the steak, you get this little salt, wonderful pop crunch thing. It is fantastic on grilled vegetables. It is just awesome. And when I first found it, 
I was I was like, where where has this stuff been? I didn't know this existed. And then I found out something else. They have freaking smoked Maldon salt flakes. Smoked. Do you hear me, folks? Smoked. You take a beautifully grilled and seared pork cut, like a big, thick pork cut, tender, juicy pork cut. And when you get that off the grill, you let that rest, and you top it with this stuff, with this smoked sea salt. Oh, my. Oh, you got to get some. I have three salt boxes in my house now. Three. One for regular plain old kosher salt, because I do not like, you know, when you're salting your vegetables and sauteing them, I don't use this stuff. It costs more money. This is a finishing salt. And I have one for the regular Maldon salt, and I have one for the smoked Maldon salt. This is one of my favorite ingredients. And I tell you guys that want to be really great cooks in the kitchen, it's little subtle things that take food and put it over the top. And sometimes things like this are things like you can serve somebody and you hit it with that little bit of salt on the top of it and they eat it and they love it and they're not even sure what the hell the difference is. Maldon Sea Salt, check it out. You can find it at tspaz.com where you'll find all my reviews. And remember, if I've reviewed it, I've used it, and I probably own it. Next up, time for our song of the day. The song of the day is called The Facts of Life. You take the good, you take... No, it's not that. It's not Tootie and what's her name? I don't remember. Joe Blair, right? Okay. And there's there's one more, and I'm missing her. The, 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 the fact girl, I don't remember her name in the show. Anyway, Mrs. I don't remember her name either, the redhead uh, lady that was in charge of all. Anyway, um, th this song was made in 1991, which I'm pretty sure by then the facts of life had come and gone. Somebody going, who the hell is this facts of life? I don't, I don't remember that. And old, older folks are like, oh, yeah, it was on TV for a long time. Anyway, uh, this song is nothing like that. This song... I, I, John Adams says he thinks that Billy Squire, who's the artist singing it, is talking about his own ups and downs in the music industry. And, and looking at the lyrics and listening to the song, I, I tend to agree. Though the song comes out in 91, the sound of it, it, it just screams like an 80s movie sound. And not like the hunky-dunky ones, like, like Legend of Billy Jean type movie, like those types of movies from the 80s. It's got that great sound that that, that era had, uh, even though it came out a few years later than that. Uh, and it is about the ups and downs of life, and it's like about how you might be really up one moment and then down so far, you'll, you're never up. You were never up in the first place, how it feels. And being knocked down and trying and running from, from the truth sometimes, running from the fact that what you did yesterday isn't mattering anymore today, and it's up to you to do something new. And sometimes you win and sometimes you lose. And welcome to the facts of freaking life. That's a hell of a message. And it's also a message I think a lot of folks in, in, in our day-to-day -day could really use listening to. Because a lot of people just seem to think like somebody's supposed to do something for them. Well, the facts of life are you either do for yourself or life kicks you in the ass. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Whoa.